Welcome to another episode of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, aka MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on Twitter at MMALOTN. This week, we're going over UFC 257, headlined by Conor McGregor and Dustin Poirier. This is the rematch from when they initially squared off way back in 2013 at UFC 178, where Conor McGregor was able to go out there and knock him out in the first round. Now, obviously, they've both made a ton of improvements, and it's been a long time coming since uh, they originally fought, so I'm expecting a much better fight. However, I don't know if the the result will be any different here so obviously stick around and you'll hear my full breakdown of this fight later on in the podcast one thing i do want to drop before i get into my betting results from the last one is i am starting my uh dfs show over there on sal vetri's channel uh his youtube channel so make sure you guys go check him out sal vetri dfs i'll be dropping all mma content on his channel uh obviously with a focus on dfs but i'll touch on some betting stuff as well too some money land stuff so his his viewers are kind of up to date on that aspect aspect as well too so i'm very excited for this new journey um you know i've done dfs here and there before but uh in 2021 i really wanted to take it to another level i was going to add it to my page but once this opportunity kind of came in, in in front of me i was just like i might as well take it like let's 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 really get out there and really uh use it as motivation to give the best that i can to that world and uh man a week into it and i'm super super loving it uh I, I couldn't have asked for a better opportunity and i couldn't ask for a better motivation in terms of really getting my feet wet in there and, and giving the people what they want so i'm very excited to see how that show plays out again that should already be out make sure you guys go on sal vetri's channel and check that out all right Let's get into the uh, let's get into the betting recap of last or yesterday I should say or two days ago, which was the Wednesday card um, and a very poor performance. Also, I do want to apologize for the lateness and the delay in getting this podcast out. I truly whiffed my preparation for this fight week. Like we had so much time to get ready for this shit, and I absolutely whiffed it. A bunch of shit came up, and uh, you know I should have been more prepared. And I should have capitalized on this big UFC fight week, especially that it's a Conor McGregor card, right? You want to get your content out nice and early, and that's what I'm normally doing. However, I really dropped the ball this week, but uh, here we are. Still getting out of a full day before the UFC fight actually happens, uh, so that should be a win in itself. All right, uh, like I said, let's get into the betting recap from a Wednesday. Uh, a rough night, not as bad as the Saturday. However, still a losing night, still a loss on the lock of the night play, which is definitely not my prouder moments, uh, but we'll get right into it. So it was minus five units on Munir Lezez right off the bat, minus 220. Um yeah, uh, you know, I really got to vet these guys a little bit more who are coming into the UFC. And I kind of even said it. Like, I even made it known that I'm like, I don't think Lizez has a huge uh, ceiling, uh, as you can look really good against Abdul Razak Al-Hassan if you're able to put up with the power right off the bat. And, uh, you know, then he looked amazing after that because he was pretty much just fighting a punching bag the entire time. Whereas Warley Alves, he knew that he had to get it done in that first round. And for some reason, Lizez was just sitting up against the cage and and letting the damage come towards him and uh unfortunately for him he he wilted to some of the body kicks that warley office was throwing to him and uh yeah he he trashes our night absolutely horrendous night um one of my yeah that one really hurt let's just start let's start there all right let's continue down on the 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 card here so at 1.5 units on the under one and a half for villanueva and mojea uh that's minus 111 and honestly you guys know me. You guys know I love violence bets, and that should have been the goddamn lock of the night play. That should have been it. 
However, I, I pussied out. I only ended up going one and a half units. That catches for 1.35 units. Then we move along to the under two and a half or under four and a half that I had in the Michael Chiesa and Neo Magni fights. I went one unit at plus 125. I was expecting if Chiesa was going to win this fight, it was going to come via submission nice and early. However, shows that his cardio is not as bad as I was making it out to be and he was able to go out there and pretty one pretty much win every single round not to mention we saw some very poor fight IQ from Neil Magny who just continuously engaged in the grappling realm with him and just probably one of the worst showings I've ever seen by far especially in a guy that I was that confident in so that's a minus one unit on the under four and a half also I had Neil Magny a part of a 1.5 unit parlay that also had Ricky Simone on it and that's another one that I very much regret passing on which was the Ricky Simone inside the distance I went out there and I, I told you guys this guy's going to run through this kid I thought it was going to happen in the first round it didn't it happened in the second round but still very happy to 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 call that to a t where he was able to get the takedown time and time again uh and then eventually get that arm triangle choke to get the finish but that's again another spot that should have been the lock and i play however i whiffed it uh, i got all gaga goo goo over Munir lizaz and i'm very very disappointed in myself for that uh let's keep things moving along the other loss was the Tyson Nam versus uh, Machinal fight. I had Tyson Nam via KO, one unit at plus 150. And if you guys remember, the, the podcast, I actually picked Machinal. I'm, and I p- picked that fight to a T, you know what I mean, in that breakdown. But I'm not sure. Something along the week just made me more and more questioning of uh, the durability of Machinal. However, it didn't really matter because Machinal went out there and put on an ass whooping on, Ma- uh, on Tyson Nam in that fight. So that misses for minus one units. And then uh, lastly, uh, one of my prouder moments, and this is how we started the card. I thought we were going to have a great card. Uh, I cashed 1.65 units on the Manon Fiorio against uh, Victoria Leonardo fight to go under two and a half rounds. Uh, yeah, I don't know what else to say. So all in all, we end minus 5.5 units on the night. Uh, very unfortunate. Again, again, not as bad as the, the event before, but still, it's never a good night when you're in the red. So um, I'm hoping to bounce back here again uh, with UFC 257. I feel like I got some good spots. Probably not the best card for a full-on five-unit lock of the night play. There are a lot of sketchy parts, in my opinion, um, but uh, I, I probably will be going with at least a three-and-a-half to four-unit lock of the night play here. I'm hoping you guys can spot it. Otherwise, just check out my Twitter and Instagram account, which is where I'll be posting my bets uh, Friday evening, so look out for that shit. All right, that's pretty much it. Uh, yeah, I don't know what what else more to say. I don't want to plug in uh, the Patreon as I had such a horrible last two events that I just feel guilty as fuck. But I do want to say that this is the first event where we're doing the pay-per-view parlay for the patrons where they've already voted on it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm going to cut it off at um, about 3 p.m. Eastern uh, on on Saturday, on fight day. So I let the, the patrons choose a four-leg parlay that they want to put 5% of my monthly take from Patreon on. Uh, and if that parlay hits, I will be paying it back. I'll be paying the winnings to uh, one of the winners or at least somebody that voted. And, uh, you know, I'll be doing a random draw and that person receives the winnings uh, if that parlay hits. Again, it's only a four-leg parlay. So there's a solid chance that it actually ends up hitting. Uh, so, yeah, shout out to all the patrons that are supporting your boy and still sticking through it, even with the shit show that I've been going through through the last two events but this should be the event that i fucking turn things around and i'm i'm 
I'm so determined to fucking turn things around, but uh, I couldn't even buy a lock because I've not unit play at this point in time. I'm hoping that it comes through this time uh, and, and we can get back on track and I can kind of shake off the rust. Obviously, I've dug myself into a little bit of a hole starting off the year, but I am lo really looking forward to getting back above ground and continuing this 2021 campaign. We're only three events into the year. So, uh, well, two events and this will be the third one. Uh, but yeah, still a long year ahead. Uh, still opportunity to really capitalize on this year and get shit going. All right. That's enough. Let's get into the breakdowns. Appreciate you guys checking out the episode as always. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe uh, to the YouTube channel as well as hit the like. Let your boy know what's up. Uh, and again, if you want to shoot me a comment in the, the comment section, you're more than welcome to. I'll do my best to get around to everybody. All right. Let's get into the breakdowns. Good luck on your best this weekend and enjoy the breakdowns. Amir Albazi versus Zagas Zumagulov. We got minus 150, minus 115 on the Kazakh fighter Zagasu Magulov and minus 105 for Amir Albazi. Now, if most of you guys remember, they are they were originally scheduled to fight at the end of November. That belt gets uh, removed. I'm not exactly sure why, uh, and it gets rescheduled to this card. And uh, yeah, I'm very excited for it. I think it's going to be a very competitive fight, hence why the odds are as close as they are. And uh, it's almost a, a, a you know the, the classic striker versus grappler here. You got Amir Albazi, who's mainly been using his grappling to get the majority of his victories in his past. Um, his only loss coming to a former UFC fighter in Jose Shori Torres in a fight that was 1-1 going into that third round. And then we saw Jose Torres kind of use his striking and his ability to keep the fight on the feet uh, to, to his advantage and was able to squeeze out the decision victory there. Then after that, we see um, Albazi get two more victories. Uh, one of them, well, both of them via submission. And we see... Uh, an ever-improving grappling game from him, uh, specifically in the jiu-jitsu realm. We know he can get the fight to the ground. His wrestling is great. He's powerful. He's young. He's explosive, and he's quick. Uh, but his 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 prowess when it comes to jiu-jitsu is definitely just uh, you know t uh, improving on a fight-to-fight -fight basis. In that Malcolm Gordon fight, you, if you guys remember that, he, he gets the fight to the ground. He is in full mount of uh, Malcolm Gordon, who himself is a black belt. Um, and Malcolm Gordon does a really good job of in terms of reversing that position and getting on top. But during that transition, uh, Amir Bazi does a really good job in terms of clearing the shoulder of uh, Malcolm Gordon. And he locks up a triangle choke and then eventually gets that tap. And that was very, very impressive from, uh, you know, especially doing that against a guy like a, a black belt like Malcolm Gordon. That was very impressive from what I saw from Amir. Um, I think that kid is improving on a fight-to-fight -fight basis. Um, you know, he's from the London Shoot Fighter camp. I believe that's the same one that Michael Venom Page fights out of, but two completely fight, uh, different styles when it comes to fighting. Uh, I think Albazi has power in his hands, but I think his main game here is getting the fight to the ground, and that's more often than not how he finds victory is usually getting a submission or just riding top control and doing enough damage from on top to be able to maintain that position. Now with Zalgas Magulov, you're talking about a guy who is very experienced on the regional scene in uh, in Russia, mainly for the Fight Nights Global banner. Uh, he gets victories over guys like Tyson Nam, Tagiru Rumbekov, and Ali Bagoutinov before finally getting the call up to the UFC. Now his fight against Tagiru Urumbekov, that was probably one of the worst decisions I've ever seen. We saw Tagir over and over get takedowns, landing good, t uh, you know, having good control, doing good sh uh, damage from on top. And that was clearly a fight that should have been scored for him. 
He lost the fight via majority decision. And Zalgas, a lot of people are thinking he got the hometown rub there as that fight did take place in Kazakhstan. So, unfortunate uh, loss for Ulan Bekov there. But uh, I think a lot of people in the know that actually watched that fight are, you know, with the understanding that Tagir definitely deserved that. And then in the uh, uh, Ali Bagotina fight, we saw Bagotina very successful with takedowns in those first two and a half to three rounds, uh, and then eventually start to wear it a little bit with Zalgas being able to get up time and time again and really putting his hands together and putting it on Ali Bagotina. Uh, Zagas comes out with a split decision victory there, but when you got a three-fight winning streak over three guys who either were in the UFC or were just about to be in the UFC, obviously you deserve to get that call up, no matter how controversial the, the cause may have been in the prior two fights. Now with Zalgas, he, he doesn't really do anything that really jumps out uh, or jumps off the paper to me. Like he's a, mainly a striker, he does a good job of being very efficient with his strikes, but isn't really a crazy knockout artist or anything like that. Like his last four victories have gone to a decision. He did knock out a guy named Artur uh, Bagotinov, if I'm not mistaken. That I, that might actually be the brother of Ali Bagotinov, but he knocked him out in uh, March of 2017. Then before that, you can't you can't even figure out when he he won uh, via finish outside of that. He's mainly a decision machine that just goes out there, puts a little bit of volume on you, but uh, you know again doesn't do anything that really jumps off the paper to you. Amir Albazi, on the other hand, I feel like we see a lot more from him. Uh, I feel like he will be able to get this fight to the ground time and time again, do some good work from on top, and do a bare minimum of at least scoring two rounds here. And again, Zalgas isn't really a much of a knockout threat, so I don't think Amir will have much to worry about in that third round, as I feel like Jose Torres was more of a finishing a threat in that third round against Samir, and we saw him survive that. And uh, again, Zagas might just put a little bit of a pace and and uh, a volume on him in that third round, if anything. But I think that we'll see Amir, you know, go out there and and get takedowns. And I think that's a, we've seen that kind of be the the Achilles heel to Zagas's game is guys that are able to get him down over and over again. Now, even though he beat Tagir and he beat um, and uh, Ali Bagotinov, those were five round fights. This is only a three round fight. Amir only needs to secure those first two rounds. And that's exactly what Tagir did. He won those first two rounds. That's exactly what Ali Abagotinov did. In my opinion, won two out of those first three rounds, or at least two out of those three rounds, um, first three rounds, I should say. Uh, and yeah, and, and all Amir needs is two here. And I think he's going to be able to do something like that. So um, originally when they were scheduled to fight each other, we saw money coming in on Zalgas. And we saw that line start to stretch a little bit more and more. And now I think that now people are seeing that um, more people were on Amir than they were expecting. We're seeing this line stick around that pretty much a pick'em line now. Now, the closer that this fight gets, I'm hoping that we see some more money come in on Zagas because I'm tempted to play Amir Albazi, especially if we get a plus uh, number beside his name. And I think that's exactly what we'll get here. Uh, I think we'll see him successful time and time again. We'll get in the fight to the ground. He seems a little bit stronger than uh, Zalgas as well, so I think he'll have some good uh, success in terms of keeping Zalgas down and doing good damage from on top. Uh, but yeah, we, we've seen that kind of be the, the kryptonite to Zalgas in the past is he can be taken down. He doesn't really have the greatest takedown defense. It's when fights are stretched longer where he's able to get his hands going and really win those later rounds. But again, we only got three rounds to go here. And I'm liking Almir Albazi, so I'll go with the younger fighter that seems to have a, uh, that seems to be on a little bit of a different trajectory here, uh, who seems to be uh, 
the, the better fighter, in my opinion. I think he's going to show off that he's being a, an ever-improving fighter. And again, it's going to come down to the grappling and the takedowns. And that's where I think Almira wins this fight. So once again, I'll go with Almira Bazi to win this fight via decision. Movzara Evluev versus Nick Lentz. We got minus 425 on Movzara and we got plus 340 on Nick the Crane Lentz. Let's start off with Nick Lentz. Uh, who is coming off a loss to Arnold Allen. And uh, in the fight before that, he just wasn't able to get past Charles Oliveira. I'm not entirely sure why they even booked that fight to begin with. Uh, that was one of those ones that had you a little bit questioning your head uh, in terms of, uh, again, why they had scheduled that. Charles Oliveira already beat him twice before. Uh, and, and then he goes in against uh, Oliveira for the third time as a huge underdog. And then obviously loses that fight. But before that, he pulled off a big win over Scott Holtzman, who a lot of people were kind of writing down as as a big play in that on that card. I thought uh, Holtzman would roll there, uh, you know, being the younger, more athletic, probably the stronger guy too. But Nick Lentz went out there and showed his grinding and gritty style. You know, he landed some big shots, showing that he has underrated power in his hands. But it eventually came down to the grinding style where he was able to push Nicklin, or sorry, Scott Holtzman up against the cage, drag him to the ground, spend some good time on top, and then eventually get that decision victory. The fight before that comes in as a decent favorite against Gray Maynard, but puts him out in a fashion that I don't think a lot of people were expecting. He puts his hands together, rocks Gray Maynard a couple of times, and then at the end, he lands this beautiful head kick, which actually lands on the back of the head of Gray Maynard, but since it was an inadvertent blow, it's deemed legal, and he, uh, you know, follows up with a little bit of ground and pound and, and gets the finish there. So big wins for him there against Gray Maynard and Scott Holtzman. However, again, coming in against Charles Oliveira, just completely outmatched in that fight. And even the Arnold Allen fight, you know, Allen too young, uh, too uh, explosive, too strong, too fast. Just a very, very bad stylistic matchup for Nick Lentz. Now here against Movzar Evloev, as you guys know, if you guys have been following me for a while, I'm huge on Evloev. I think he has championship potential. Ever since he moved up to 145 pounds as well, I think that this is a solid spot for him to truly fill out into his body. Now, a lot of people thought he would be too small for this weight class as he was the champion over an M1 at 135 pounds. But at 145 pounds, undefeated, looks great. I think the, the most uh, issues we've ever seen him have was against... Um, was against... Jeez, uh, why can't I get that guy's name out of my head right now? Enrique Barzola, which was two fights ago. So uh, in that amount of time, he's beaten Mike Grundy, and in the first round, he he, he was you know had a little bit of trouble with Grundy. Grundy had him in a very tight Dars choke. Uh, he was able to get out of that, and then after that, it was just all Movzar. And one thing that we're seeing from Movzar is an improved striking game on a fight to fight basis. His main training camp mainly takes place in uh, Taiga Muay Thai, and he was getting in a lot of good rounds against Piotr Jan, and there's a ton of footage online as well, too, if you guys want to check that out. Uh, but since that amount of time, he he has moved down to ATT. I feel like he's just in such a safer place to be at this point in time and, and to get the best amount of training and training partners as well, considering this whole COVID era that we're in currently. I think if it, you know if this COVID thing wasn't going on, he'd probably be back at uh, Target Muay Thai and getting in good rounds with those guys. But at uh, at this moment in time, there's just not a lot of people traveling and going out there to really get the bodies that are needed to get the proper amount of training. So going down to ATT, I think it's a great look for him to get different types of fighters, different different styles and different looks. And I think it's only going to help his game pro progress on a fight to fight basis. Now, in Nick Lance. Uh, 
I could see in instances where Nick Lance is successful in getting Movzar down. Like as good of a wrestler as Movzar is, he still does concede takedowns here and there. And Nick Lance seems like a guy that could do something like that. But as long as this fight stays on the feet, which I think Movzar will be able to get his find his way back to his feet uh, relatively quickly, it's going to be one way traffic in terms of the striking because the the striking style that we're seeing in Movzar is just so much confidence, uh, using the jab very well, using combinations very well too. Uh, his kicks are really coming along too. And I, I truly think that on a fight-to-fight basis that we see just massive improvements from Movzar. Now, if you guys remember, Movzar was actually supposed to fight Nate Landwehr a couple weeks ago, I believe at the end of December. Uh, however, he tested positive for COVID, had to pull out of his fight. And luckily for him, they were able to reschedule him here against Nick Lentz, who as well was supposed to fight Mike Grundy a couple weeks ago. Um, but uh, Grundy had to pull out. I, I believe it was COVID or injury-related. But regardless, they find a way to match up these two fighters. And I'm very excited for it. Now, again, as you, as I said at the top of this breakdown, I'm a huge Movzar FOF stan. I think that he's a great fighter. I think he has championship potential. But I'm kind of finding it hard to really justify betting him at minus 425. Solid parlay piece, yeah. But in terms of like having him high up there based on uh, you know the rest of the card, I'm trying to find reason why he should be like a first tier or second tier type of uh, heavy favorite here. I like him st- to still to win this fight. I think he outgrinds Nick Lenz. You know, as soon as, like, the, the further this fight goes, I think it's going to be a little bit easier for him to grind on Nick Lenz, really get his striking game going, really get his grappling going too. I think that could be something that he's very successful in. But one thing that he's going to have to worry about when he does go for takedowns against Nick Lenz is leaving his neck out there. As long as he's able to keep his chin tucked and, and keep it uh, pressed up against his chest whenever he's going for these takedowns or at least just having his uh his head on the inside he should be safe uh in terms of getting Nick Lance down and then he should be able to do some good work from on top as well and and do some good ground and pound I'll give this to Nick Lance he's very durable and he still goes out there and springs off these upsets but I just find this to be a monumental task for him to go out there and beat a guy like Movzar who's just just on a different trajectory um very durable as well too I don't see um I don't see Nick Lance really hurting him and finishing him either uh yeah I, i'm really really high on movzar and i do think he wins this fight for sure so i'm going with movzar i have to win this fight via decision i think it'll have a little bit of trouble trying to put away nick Lentz. maybe he pulls off a submission of some sort because his submission game is definitely coming together as well but uh, i think uh, at the end of the day we see a complete performance from movzar here from grappling clinching wrestling uh the jiu-jitsu and even his ever-improving striking game as well too so once again i'll go with movzar Evluev win this fight via decision Mahmoud Muradov versus Andrew Sanchez we got minus 135 on Muradov and plus 115 on Andrew Sanchez let's start off with Andrew Sanchez who's coming off a very impressive knockout over uh, Wellington Terman last time around that was back in August and that was him going out there and righting the wrong of his Marvin Vittori fight where he got absolutely decimated in uh, in October of 2019 that was a fight where he was pretty much just beat everywhere uh, if you guys remember there was a lot of uh, heat going into that fight as well too where a lot of people just you know uh, I think Andrew Sanchez was like uh, accusing him of using steroids and all that type of stuff and we know Vittori once a fight gets uh, personal, the guy really starts to bring it in. That's exactly what happened in that fight. Sanchez just could not get anything going. Marvin Vittori, you know, put his hands together very well, really did some damage on Sanchez. And Sanchez wasn't able to rely on the wrestling that has allowed him to be successful thus far into the UFC. Now, 
the fight against Wellington Terman, we saw a completely different Andrew Sanchez, and a lot of people were very surprised at uh, the the type of fighter that we saw there. You know, he came out in a bit of a karate stance, bouncing on the tip of his toes, and then was closing distance very well, and really trusting his hands and being very comfortable with his hands as well, which is something that we haven't really seen from him in the past uh, too. Now, something that it kind of reminds me of is kind of the Khalil Roundtree thing where he goes out there and absolutely decimates Eric Anders, maybe doesn't get a knockout relatively quickly, but goes out there and decisions him, but looking the best we've ever seen him in the striking room. And that's what we're getting with Andrew Sanchez, who looked amazing in the striking room because he was really sitting down on his shots and, and really getting the bulk of his power out of there. But again, Wellington Terman, probably not the greatest striker to go up against. But uh, again, Terman, solid all-around fighter. Uh, but I think that Sanchez, once he really started to show that confidence, it was really paying dividends for him in that fight. Uh, heard him a couple times and eventually finished him with a beautiful shot. Um, and we've never seen that from Andrew Sanchez before. What we kind of know to him as being is that guy that goes out there and spams the takedowns and tries to get that top control and then eventually probably gasses out in that third round uh, but does just enough like he did in the Marc-Andre Berriot fight where he was just doing enough to be able to keep him pinned up against the cage, drag him to the floor and do some damage from there. Now, obviously, he's a TriStar representative, uh, and it seems like his work with Faraz Zahabi is really starting to come to fruition, but I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, and I don't think people should be doing the same. You know what I mean? I, I, one thing that it kind of reminds me of is a fellow Canadian, well, I guess Andrew Sanchez isn't a Canadian, but another mullet rocker uh, in Tanner Bozer. A lot of people got sidetracked and thinking, okay, this guy's a knockout puncher now, now that he got uh, Hafiel Pesoa out there. What happens the next time around, he's not able to go out there and knock out Andre Arlovsky, who arguably has some chin issues himself. So I don't want people getting too far ahead of themselves and thinking that, okay, Andrew Sanchez is this crazy one-punch knockout kind of guy now, just because he went out there and finished a guy like Terman. Now, if he's able to go out there and knock out a guy like um, Mahmoud Murdov, I'd be very impressed. I think Muradov is much more technical on the feet, does a really good job of kind of gauging his distance and fighting from distance, but has great combinations, great kicks, and even when he wants to, he can turn on his takedown game uh, to, to get it going. Now, Muradov is a very uh, experienced fighter. He has over 30 fights to his record. This will be his 31st fight, whereas uh, for Andrew Sanchez, this will only be his 18th fight. So he almost has him doubled in terms of uh, level of experience when it comes to MMA. Uh, this would only be the third fight for Mahmoud Muradov in the UFC, uh, but he did fight uh, former uh, UFC fighters on the regional scene against Alberto Uda, finished him in the first round, and then Wendell Oliveira, who he finished in the second round as well too. Uh, he's had some decent and stiff competition on the regional scene, which makes me truly believe that he's ready for the UFC. The last time we actually saw him get or lose was via doctor stoppage against David Ramirez way back in December of 2016. But that fight, if you guys go watch the back, he was doing relatively well in it. Uh, but it ended up coming down to a, a shoulder injury. They, they were clinching up in the second round, and there was a lot of jostling and stuff, and, and once they, they broke, you see kind of Mahmoud kind of just go to his shoulder, and it was definitely giving him a ton of pain, and they ended up stopping it uh, due to an injury. So I kind of like to write those ones off. When a guy loses VA injury, uh, especially like in the clinch like that, uh, it kind of reminds me of like Brandon Moreno versus uh, Brandon Royval, kind of similar situation there. Uh, I kind of just... I give them a pass. I give them a mulligan there. So then he comes back a couple fights later and actually beats the same guy, David Ramirez, uh, via strikes in the second round. Uh, and that fight took place about a year and a half after the original one. He did go out there and put together a four-fight winning streak in that amount of time. Uh, and now, right now, I believe it's at 13 straight, 12 or 13 straight fights that he's currently at where he's gotten his hand raised. 
I'm a fan of the dude. I think he has a ton of potential. Um, he does have a solid boxing. Like I said, he's 30 years old. He'll be 31 in uh, in February. Whereas Andrew Sanchez, we've seen him. Uh, well, he's 32 now. He'll be 33 in April. But we've seen from Andrew Sanchez, uh, his constant cardio issues when fights are dragged on. Now, I'm interested to see how his cardio looks with his newfound love for striking uh, and if he's truly comfortable in that range for the majority of 15 minutes. If he's not able to get Muradov out of there in the first round, how is his cardio going to hold up? You know what I mean? More often than not, when fighters are fighting in their secondary style, and we obviously know that this is not the preferred style for Andrew Sanchez. It usually brings them a little bit more stress, which ends up allowing them to to, to gas a little bit quicker. Um, it didn't seem like he was slowing down. In those four minutes that we saw of him against Wellington Terman, he seemed pretty good. He seemed comfortable uh, and he seemed ready to go. But my question is how he's going to do against a guy that fights as well as Almiradov does on the feet. Now, Muradov himself does have a couple cardio issues as well, too. We did see him start to slow down a little bit in that third round. And that kind of makes me a little bit hesitant in terms of thinking that, okay, uh, if Andrew Sanchez wants to go out there and wrestle in the third round, he might be um, successful with it. But I think that Sanchez does show a much more worse gas tank than we've seen from Murdov. And I feel like Murdov does have good uh, awareness in terms of whenever he clinches up in these positions, you can go back and watch most of his fights. He's pretty much immediately digging for hunger hooks. And we know that's like the number one uh, solution to kind of combating uh, takedowns, especially when you're up against the cage. So I, I like what we're seeing from him. He's very experienced. His hands are really good too. I think it might stifle the forward movement of Andrew Sanchez here. And I'm interested to see if Andrew will be continuing, uh, continuing his confidence with his hands if he starts to get pieced up in that first round and really starts to get counter too. I feel like the counter game of Muradab is very, very good. And I feel like it could very much pay off for him here as long as one, he doesn't get knocked out. But from what we've seen, he has a solid chin, hasn't been knocked out in years. Um, and uh, with Andrew Sanchez, this is only one fight. We have a one fight um, sample size in terms of how good he is when he truly has confidence in his striking. And again, I do believe Muradov has the better striking than Wellington Terman, and he does a really good job of moving in and out, getting out of the way of big shots. Uh, but I'm uh, I'm very much interested to see what he brings to the table here against Sanchez. Now around that minus 135 range, I think this is a solid spot to go out there and bet Muradov. I think this there's good value on him, and I think that the the market is slightly skewed due to the the impressive nature of Andrew Sanchez's last fight. I gotta go out there and see him perform that well over a couple of fights before I can truly believe. Okay, this is Andrew Sanchez 2.0. Just like Khalil Roundtree, another guy that I like to kind of, that's kind of my my main example when we go out there and see fighters fight in a way we've never seen them fight before and then in the next fight go out there and just get their, their game plan uh, stifled just as Iwan Kutilaba did against uh, uh, Khalil Roundtree. And I know uh, Iwan took the, the grappling approach and was able to nullify the striking of Khalil there and Murdov does have uh, takedowns in his back pocket as well too but I think it will be a little bit more difficult for him to get that fight to the ground round um early in this early in the fight so uh, i believe obviously sanchez will have the wrestling advantage but for how long we don't know maybe in the later rounds we'll see Murdov a little bit more successful in getting the fight to the ground when sanchez is a little bit more compromised but it's all about Murdov getting out of that first round where i think the power of sanchez will be the most and if sanchez or Murdov is able to counter successfully over and over again in that first round i think it's really going to stifle the forward movement and the confidence of Andrew Sanchez. So once again, I'll go with Mahmoud Muradov to win this fight via decision by picking apart Andrew Sanchez over the 15-minute period.
Khalil Roundtree versus Marcin Pracnio. We got minus 325 on Khalil with the comeback on Marcin being plus 265. And obviously, you guys know me. This is my tailor-made type of matchup where I try to seek out the under. And the under here is minus uh, roughly around that minus 165, minus 170 for the under one and a half. Now, statistically speaking, these guys combined for 22 out of 30 of their fights going under one and a half, which gives us roughly about a 73% hit rate based on the historical data that we have. The odds indicate that this uh, bet will hit at about a 62% clip, which gives us about 11 to 10% uh, to work with in terms of considering whether we get value on this line or not. If you want to plug it right into American odds, you could bet it up to minus 270 and still be working with odds. Maybe not getting the value the higher that this is getting, but at least uh, you know going in line with what the historical data has shown us between these two guys. Now let's put the statistics to the side and let's talk about how these guys actually fight and what they're up to recently. So uh, starting off with Khalil Roundtree, I, I want to say kh because I'm just so used to doing the Khabib, but I'm thinking Khalil likes to just go with Khalil. So with Khalil, he's 2-2 uh, two and two in his last uh, four. Uh, he obviously lost a fight before that to Mikhail Oleg Shejuk. Uh, that fight ended up being changed to a no contest because Mikhail ended up uh, testing positive for something. But Goes out there, knocks out Gokhan Saki after that, then gets knocked out by Johnny Walker. Then goes out there and puts on probably a performance of the lifetime against Eric Anders, and then loses to uh, Ian Kutilaba next time around, who ends up going out there and showing us that he's a wrestler. But uh, the one that I want to highlight is the Eric Anders fight, which is kind of the outlier in terms of not finishing under one and a half. <clears throat> That's a fight where we saw pre-Khalil going to uh, Tiger Muay Thai. You know I mean, he goes to Muay Thai, Tiger Muay Thai in Thailand, completely, uh, you know, changes his entire approach to MMA training. And we see him, like, the first minute coming out into that uh, Eric Anders fight, we see him uh, with that heavy Thai style. You know what I mean? Hands up, kind of palms facing forward, and kind of just, like, bringing up that lead leg to, to check anything that's probably coming his way. I'm not sure what he saw on tape with Eric Anders, which would make him believe that he would need to check kicks, but he was doing it nonetheless to kind of just stay true to that Muay Thai stance that he was bringing to the table. So what we saw out of him was a little bit of a measured approach where he was just leg kicking Eric Anders and just waiting for the opportunity to let his hands go. And once he started letting his hands go, he was dropping Eric Anders. He was landing some big shots. He was really getting his game going. But with Eric Anders, you're getting a guy that technically speaking isn't really the greatest in the stand-up realm. Like, yeah, Eric Anders has great knockout power, and that's kind of how he made a name for himself before coming to the UFC. Uh, but uh, when, you're, when you're fighting other technical fighters... He's going to get pieced up. You know what I mean? And, and that's exactly what happened with Khalil. And that was a perfect fight for him to kind of go out there and showcase the newly acquired Muay Thai skills uh, that he got from Tiger Muay Thai. Um, that fight probably could have been stopped a couple times. You know, he dropped him so many times. Didn't really uh, rush in to get the finish either. But here against Marcin Pracnio, I see him having much more success in terms of dropping, dropping him, rocking him, and hurting him, and probably following up with those strikes as well too, considering the diminishing durability of um, Marcin Pracnio. Now, somebody who just fought recently that I kind of put that same diminishing durability attribute to is Vinicius Mojea. Now, that fight was a little bit more of a sweat with him and uh, Ike Villanueva as it ended up actually hitting the second round. But once I hit the second round, he ate a clean punch to the face and just went down like a sack of bricks. I'm expecting the same thing here from Marcin Pracnio. Now, the thing though is with 
Khalil being minus 325, that line is just way too high. Like the line that you want to be attacking if you are uh, a Khalil Roundtree backer would be Khalil by KO, which is minus 185, getting much more value there. And then even Khalil inside the distance, minus 195. But I highly doubt we'll see him go out there and, and uh, pull off a submission victory. So maybe the KO prop is the way that you want to be going. Regardless, you're still getting a solid value if this fight goes under one and a half, which is the spot that I'm probably going to be targeting here, as I believe that both guys have uh, sketchy chins, like we've seen. And that is Alfred sneezing in the background of one of my podcasts. Get it out, buddy. Get it out. You good? All right. He's in the podcast studio right now just because the wife isn't home, so I got to look after the little guy. And he's pretty good at keeping his mouth shut. But he, he got something in his nose. All right, let's keep it moving along. Um, yeah, I think Khalil Roundtree definitely has some uh, chin issues as well, too. Obviously, he got knocked out by Johnny Walker, uh, got put down by Tyson Pedro, and then eventually choked out there, and then choked out by Corey Hendricks as well, too. But I, I'm I'm expecting the knockout to come from the Khalil Roundtree side. You know, I truly think that you can bink uh, Pracnil from any position. He could, he's probably going to feel it and definitely go down as well, too. Pracnil brings a little bit more of a karate-style type of stance where he's standing a little bit wider and tries to lunge in and out. But unfortunately for him, anytime somebody just counters him, which I think Khalil will be very successful in doing so, uh, we see him go down. And that's where I see this fight happening. And I expect that to happen within seven and a half minutes. I'm not expecting to see Khalil go out there and just pitter-patter from the outside he might he might start off like that but i think it's eventually gonna aggravate marching practice to kind of crash forward a little bit more and that will lead him to get countered and knocked out so i like the under one and a half here it might be a little bit chalky but given the statistics that we have and given the diminishing durability of marching practice i'm expecting uh, a clear round tree knockout here whether it's the first um or even early in the second i expect a a little bit of fireworks and another angle that i kind of want to go with here as well too is that they're on a big card here ufc 257 headline by conor mcgregor they want to go out there and they want to be the guys that are kind of showcased and and kind of uh they want to make a name from the zones you know what i mean they want to be noticed and the way to be noticed is to go out there and put on a great performance uh especially a, a, high, a highlight reel knockout or even just a knockout to begin with you want to snatch that performance of the night bonus and you want to snatch that uh, that that social media push that you could potentially get by getting a big knockout here and i truly believe that khalil roundtree knows that this is something that he can go out there and capitalize on especially against a guy like marching practice so the fact that practice is still in the ufc kind of beyond me you know what i mean the guy goes out there gets knocked out by sam alvey in the first round knocked out by um uh who's the guy after that jeez why can't i remember it oh, oh yeah magomed uncle live and then goes out there and gets uh knocked out by mike rodriguez so the fact that he's even getting a fourth shot in the ufc is uh, is mystifying we've had some people in the past actually the two most notable fighters at least from the last couple cards uh that were on zero and three streaks was alessio di carico who goes out there saves his job knocks out joaquin buckley and then Vanessa Mello, who 0-3 in the UFC, goes out there and wins a decision against Sarah Morass. Is this going to be practical as well, too? Are we going to see this trend of 0-3 fighters finally breaking that streak? Personally, I don't think so. I think we'll see Khalil go out there and get the victory. But again, I like the under 1.5, and, and that's the angle I'm going to be going with. So I'll go with Khalil Roundtree to win this fight via first round. KO. Sarah McMahon versus Juliana Pena. We got minus 130 
on Sarah McMahon and plus 110 on Juliana Pena. And now these girls were scheduled to fight each other back at June, uh, last week, actually. It's only been moved back a week. I'm not 100% sure exactly why, but here they are uh, throwing down uh, for us at UFC 257. Now, both girls, primarily grapplers, will start off on the Sarah McMahon side of things, who's coming off a dominant victory over Lena Landsberg, where she was able to gather over 13 and a half minutes of top control throughout that 15-minute fight. Take that in. Only a minute and a half they spent on the feet. So Sarah McMahon was pretty much uh, very successful in getting the fight down over and over again. I expect her to do the same thing here against Juliana Pena, but might... Uh, meet a little bit of resistance with Juliana. She has some decent jujitsu. However, I kind of under. Uh, I, I don't think she has the greatest jujitsu off of her back, and that's a weird thing. I think she is much better when she's the one on top. But when she's dealing with Sarah McMahon from the top with that crushing pressure, I think she's going to have a little bit more of difficulty in terms of trying to pull off a submission or catch something, uh, catch McMahon in something. Now, the issue with McMahon is the fact that she's 40 years old. We've seen her, you know, gas against girls like Ketlin Vieira and, and uh, Marion Renault and unfortunately have to give up some sort of submission from the bottom there. So that's absolutely a worry here. That's a reason kind of why I'm staying away from Sarah McMahon in this spot, even though at minus 130, it seems like a solid opportunity. Um, you know, we, we did see her go out there and go 15 hard minutes against Lena Landsberg and get that victory. But Juliana Pena is definitely not Lena Landsberg. Over the last couple of training camps as well, we've seen Sarah McMahon move it over to uh, Sacramento where she's able to train with Team Alpha Male and has been getting good looks and good work there from a lot of the, uh, the the guys that are over there. And even Corey McKenna, who just recently made her UFC debut, they seem to be training together quite a lot. So that's a good look for her as well. Um, it, it's just, is her cardio going to hold up? And that's the main thing because she goes hard for 15 minutes. You know, she muscles these takedowns and she gets on top and she does her best to try to keep these opponents down. And I feel like Juliana Pena will continuously be swarming, uh, squirming and trying to get out of those bad positions. The issue with Juliana Pena is though her takedown defense is just not the greatest. And she's a great wrestler herself too. Unfortunately, she's just not doing a good job of uh, kind of stifling the takedowns that are coming her way. You know, she got taken down by Milana Dudieva way back in the day. You know, she uh, conceded three takedowns to Nico Montano. Um, a couple other instances where she gotten taken down, Kat Zangano obviously, but Zangano is a pretty solid uh, uh, wrestler as well too. So I think that Sarah McMahon, obviously the best wrestler that Pena has faced up until this point, it's all going to come down to how she deals with it off of her back. I think Pena does have this slight striking advantage, but I don't think it's by a wide margin, nor do I think that it's going to get either girl in trouble if this fight does stay on the feet. I truly believe the majority of it will look like McMahon on top of Pena, and then it's going to come down to how good jiu-jitsu or how good of a jiu-jitsu game Pena does have off of her back. Like I was alluding to a little bit earlier in this breakdown, I don't think it's that great. I, you know, I, I don't think that should be able to catch Sarah McMahon in any trouble, uh, which leads me to believe that we'll see Sarah McMahon kind of just grind this fight out for the full 15 minutes. The cardio is really what comes into play here. And and you kind of question the cardio of Juliana Pena as well, too. You know, I mean, in her fight against Jermaine Duran, I mean, she's 1-1 going into that third run, and she's just desperate takedown, desperate takedown. And I, and I obviously get it. You don't want to be in the striking realm with Jermaine Duran, who's probably one of the best strikers in that division. So you're spamming the takedowns as much as possible. Unfortunately for her, I don't know whether it was exhaustion or just super desperation. She leaves her chin out there, and she gets choked out by a striker. I don't know how many people would have been able to call Jermaine Durand and me winning that fight via submission. I'm guessing not a whole lot. You know what I mean? So 
I feel like we we still need to see more of Juliana Pena. This is only her site. Oh, this will be her third fight removed from having a kid. The first fight she had was against Nico Montano, and she just eked out a decision. Didn't look the best from what we've seen her. But can you really you know blame her? She just had a kid. I mean, so you got to cut her some slack there. Obviously, she comes back against a very stiff competition, and Jermaine Durandamy was, was looking good up until the point she got choked out. Now, here she's going up against another grappler in Sarah McMahon, who probably will have her beat in that realm, and I'm going to go with Sarah McMahon. I do think she gets the takedowns. I do think she stays out of the submissions. Um, am I confident enough in terms of putting money on it? Probably not. Uh, but I will take her to win this fight uh, via decision. Brad Tavares versus Antonio Carlos Jr. And we got minus 125 on the Hawaiian Brad Tavares and plus 105 on Antonio Carlos Jr. And as this fight week has progressed, we are seeing money come in on the Brazilian. He went from about plus 135 now down to plus 105. And I wouldn't be surprised if we see this line flip come fight time or at least settle out of pick'em range. Now let's start off with Carlos Jr. who we've been seeing a little bit more of compared to the Hawaiian and the last time we saw Antonio Carlos Jr. was against Uriah Hall where he uh, lost a split decision in that fight but I believe he deserved to lose that fight. He was a big bet for me that night as well and Uriah Hall came out there and showcased that um, solid submission defense and uh, was able to go out there and dish out way more damage. Now that first round was was an interesting one because we saw him eat a couple jabs then eventually get the back of Uriah Hall but just not able to get the finish there. Uh, Uriah Hall did a really good job of sticking his jab out there which is in my opinion probably one of the best weapons that any fighter has in any division in the UFC which is Uriah Hall's jab very fast very explosive right down the middle so much snap on it too and he usually just lands right bink right on the the, the nose of most of his opponents that's exactly what happened to ACJ. Now we saw uh, Carlos Jr. go out there and, and complete takedowns and he got Uriah Hall down a bunch of times. Even that third round, had his back the entire round, but just wasn't able to pull off the submission. Uriah Hall did a really good job of kind of controlling one arm to ensure that the rear naked choke could not be completed. And uh, yeah, we saw ACJ go out there and lose a decision. Before that, goes out there and gets out hustled by a guy in Ian Heinish who just constant movement, never really stopped going and just had the better stand up and was was able to get out of these bad positions in these grappling realms before that uh chokes out uh, eric spicely chokes out uh jack marshman chokes out tim boach obviously none of those guys to the level of brad tavares at this point in time but then again brad tavares we haven't really seen much of him uh recently either you know his last two fights unfortunately for him his last two fights he was putting up put up against hot prospects most notably the first one Israel Adesanya goes out there and gets uh, pretty much dominated for uh, five rounds. Adesanya goes out there and kind of stamps his name within the division and just says, okay, now I'm for real. If I'm not mistaken, after that, Israel Adesanya got that Derek Brunson fight and uh, then just got rocketed after that too. Even Edmund Shabazin, who was the next fight that uh, Brad Tavares went up against, uh, goes out there and gets head kick knocked out in that first round, halfway through the first round. They got stunned a couple times and then eventually gets put out by the head kick. But uh, I'm sure he's singing his praises now that he's going up there against another UFC vet, no longer a hot prospect, young hot prospect coming up, trying to make a name off themselves, uh, off of uh, Brad Tavares. Uh, but I still think that this is a very difficult matchup for him uh, against a grappling specialist and Antonio Carlos Jr. Now, we've never seen Brad Tavares uh, submitted 
in the in the UFC officially, he did get choked out by Court McGee as an exhibition bout on The Ultimate Fighter over 11 years ago now. Uh, but uh, what we've come to learn about Brad Tavares is he's a very efficient striker. Like, goes out there, puts combinations together too, does decent in the clinch, not really much of a wrestler, like tried to take Israel Adesanya down. He did get him down once, but then that was really about it. Wasn't able to get much damage off out there, but I highly doubt we'll see him go out there and try to wrestle Carlos Jr. here. Uh, I think Brad's best path to victory is kind of maintaining his distance, picking his shots from the outside, and hoping that his volume will be enough, or hopefully knock out Antonio Carlos Jr. so he doesn't have to worry about going the full 15 minutes. I find that hard to believe. Uh, you know, I think Carlos Jr. has a ton of uh, durability. Um, you know, Uriah Hall wasn't able to finish him. Uh, he did get finished by Daniel Kelly way back in uh, 2016. And I think that was a fight where he just just went ham looking for the finish, gassed out, and then eventually got finished by Daniel Kelly late. Um, and yeah, that, that's been the only time we've seen him finish via strikes. Uh at all you know i mean i i think that he's a he's a solid fighter a solid grappler a big guy too a big imposing strong guy and i think the work that he's do doing down there at american top team is really helping him round out his game and hopefully getting his uh cardio in check really helps him too he's 30 years old he'll be 31 uh whereas brad tafaris i believe is already 33 years old he seems like he's been in the ufc for ages yeah he he just turned 33 in december or sorry he should be 34 no, sorry, he was 33. He turned 33 in December. But uh, yeah, I think uh, I think it's going to be difficult for Brad Tavares to kind of keep ACJ at range. You know, we've seen uh, Junior kind of go out there and, and close the distance. Doesn't matter if he's taking damage and he's still able to get these guys down. I don't I don't think Brad Tavares has the, the pop uh, that Uriah Hall has. I don't think he has the cardio and the, the scramble ability that Ian Heinish does. And that's where I think he's going to run into trouble with uh, Carlos Jr. here, who should be able to kind of just smother him for the majority of those 15 minutes. Now, if you're giving me plus money on ACJ, I'm probably going to take a little bit of a shot there. I think there's some value as I believe that he will be the more dominant grappler and will be able to get the fight to the positions that he wants to. We've never seen uh, Brad Tavares actually submitted either, again, other than his time on The Ultimate Fighter, and I gotta believe that he's only gotten better since that amount of time, but I find it, I'm, I'm trying not to run too far with the narrative that I believe that uh, Carlos Trino will submit Brad Tavares here. I do think he wins by decision, I do think that he continues to get this fight to the ground, as I don't think that Brad Tavares showcases what what he needs in terms of being able to get off the cage well um, and dealing with a big imposing guy like ACJ. So in terms of what I'm talking about, big imposing guy, we got 6'1", 74-inch reach for Brad Tavares. And then for uh, ACJ, we got 6'2", 79-inch reach. The guy's just built different. You know I mean, he's, he's a big bulky guy, has a huge torso, wide shoulders, uh, and is able to really like muscle his opponents to the ground. Now, we got to worry about his cardio as well, too, because it might not be the easiest to keep Brad Tavares down, but I think he will be able to do so. Uh, and again, Brad Tavares not being a huge punch or anything like that will leave, uh, I think he'll leave the fight on the table a little bit in that third round, not being able to finish ACJ. And again, Uriah Hall had issues finishing him, too. Ian Heinish, who in my opinion has better cardio than Brad Tavares, probably finished or didn't finish him either. So, uh, yeah, I'm going with uh, Antonio Carlos Jr. here. And I truly think that we see a dominant uh, grappling performance, possible sub, but I'm going to go with the decision uh, side here for Antonio. Uh, but again, you get, you're getting Matt plus money, and I think that's a solid spot. So I'm going with Antonio Carlos Jr. to win this fight via decision.
Arman Sarukian versus Nazrat Hakprast, and we got minus 290 on Sarukian and plus 245 on Nazrat Hakprast. Let's start off with the fighter that's been in the UFC slightly longer with Nazrat Hakprast. He made his debut against Marcin Held on short notice way back in October of 2017, and we saw Held go out there, land three takedowns, and do some good top control, and was able to kind of grind out uh, Nazrat there. In that amount of time, we saw Nazrat go on a three-fight winning streak over Mike D. Casey, Thibaut Gauti, and Joachim uh, Silva, where he was able to knock out the, the last opponent there, but showed great striking in his fights against Gauti and D. Casey as well. Um, uh, obviously, he gets knocked out by Drew Dober in uh, January of this year, but then also goes out there and uh, goes to a decision victory over Alex Munoz in uh, August. And that was a fight where we saw kind of a similar approach uh, and stylistically what it will be like here against Armin, which is Alex Munoz kind of being a wrestler, wanting to get his jiu-jitsu going, was successful right off the bat in terms of getting Nazrat down. But then after that was very, very, uh, yeah, he just never landed a takedown after that. The striking of Nazrat started to add up, uh, his pot shotting and his ability to cover range uh, and distance with his shots very much paid off for Nazrat there. He fights in a very low crouch type of style where he's kind of bent over, where it's almost like he's ready to to almost stuff takedowns. And it seems like that's kind of the approach that will be very suitable for him here against Armin Sarukian. Um, I, I, I'm not usually a fan of guys that are kind of pot shotters and just put together like one or two strikes, but I kind of have to, I kind of give uh, Nazrat the, the benefit of the doubt here who, you know, is a pot shotter to a certain extent, but does throw in enough volume where you're like, okay, he's dishing out enough damage and should be able to, uh, to piece up most of his opponents like against alexander munoz lands 104 strikes against tibaut gauti lands 124 strikes in the nazrat uh, sorry in the joachim silva fight that one ended in the second round he landed 21 strikes against mark d casey landed 93 strikes against marcin held even though he got held down for a little bit of it he still went out there and landed 27 strikes we saw marcin uh he accrued ba -ba -ba, seven and a half minutes of control time now Obviously, when you see the Marcin held fight and you see Alexander Munoz take him out, take him down right off the bat, you're like, okay, stylistically, this should be an Armin Sarukian fight no matter what, right? But then when you start to dig into the Armin uh, side of things, you kind of understand why Nazrat is that absolutely a live dog here. He goes takedown for takedown against um, uh, against Islam Mahachev in his first UFC fight. I believe that fight was taken on short notice as well too. Probably the best performance we've seen from a a debuting fighter against a guy that the at the level of Islam Mahachev and even on the losing end. Probably like a lot of people were very surprised in terms of him being able to fight as closely as he did against Mahachev there. Then he comes back, beats uh, Olivier Obama CA in a fight where... It seemed like his takedowns really weren't working for him, and that was very surprising there. Like, it worked in the first round, then he was having trouble in that second round. He only landed two takedowns against Olivier Aubin. In that third round, I think Olivier made a huge mistake, started grappling with him, tried getting his own takedown, and then slipped, and we saw Armand uh, pretty much ride out the top position for the majority of that fight. I find it hard to believe that Nazareth's going to kind of do the same thing with, with like, kind of engaging in that clinch and, and trying to go for his own takedowns. He knows what his best pass, best path to victory is which is fighting at range landing his big shots from the outside and kind of just uh, stuffing the takedowns and I believe he will be successful in stuffing the takedowns and I don't just say that because of his victory over uh, Alex Munoz last time around I truly believe that Sarukian is the much better wrestler compared to Alex Munoz uh, and has a lot more confidence in his striking as well which should allow him to set up his takedowns better but given the fighting stance and style of Hackpress 
I feel like he'll be very successful in terms of shucking off those takedown attempts. I believe that Ar Armin does have better striking than most wrestlers out there, and he shows confidence in it, has a great high kick as well too, that he likes to flash and throws in a couple combinations, but the majority and the best of his work is done in those clinch positions where he's pushing guys up against the cage and dragging them to the ground and uh, kind of accruing that control time. At plus 240-ish, or what, what, what was the line that I said that Hack Price was at? Uh, yeah, plus 245, plus 250 at a certain a couple places that you can currently get him at. I think he's a bit of a steal here. I remember everybody was just super high on Nazra Hackpress, not not you know just a couple fights ago, even over Drew Dober. But Dober obviously showing has a ton of power in his hands. Even Dober himself having massive amounts of success and improvements that we've seen. So uh, you know you can't read too much into that, I believe. And I'm not sure if Armin really has that knockout power to really put out a guy like Nazra Hackpress. Um, nor does I do I think that uh, he'll be able to cover that range to truly land clean enough on Nazra to get that knockout. I like Nazrat to win this fight, and I like him as a big dog, and this is the second big dog on the card that I've truly spotted, and I feel like we'll have some solid value here. I think he could give Armin trouble on the feet. I think he can shuck off the takedowns, especially after that first round. And in that third round, we've seen Armin show a little bit of, not gas tank issues, but he does start to slow down. Whereas Hackpress, I feel like we see solid cardio from him from rounds one to round three, because he's able to keep the fight on the feet, keep uh, his his striking going, keep the confidence in his striking going, and I think he gets very, very iffy for Arman the later this fight goes. I don't think Arman finishes him. I think, if anything, uh, Hackbrast could have the advantage in possibly getting this fight done. Um, and and uh, another weapon of Nazareth's that I very much like that I think will come into play here is his rear uppercut. He throws it with a ton of power, and if he times it correctly in terms of the entries of Arman Surukin, he could possibly put him out that way as well too. So I, I like Nazra here, and I really wanted to come into this trying to find a reason to bite to bet Sarukin, as I believe that guy, that guy is a top five to top ten talent, and he is getting better on a fight to fight basis. So that's something that we need to kind of keep in mind here. He's twenty four years old. Nazra Hackprast himself, he's twenty five. So both of these guys are definitely making improvements. But in terms of what we've seen to this point, uh, Sarukin's not as efficient with his takedowns as I initially thought he was. And uh, the Olivier Obama's here fight is definitely a huge red flag in that fight. We saw Olivier very successful in terms of shucking off the takedowns. Let me get the actual statistics for you in terms of what it was like. So Saryukin did land two takedowns on him, but he went two of 11. 11, 18%. On, on his takedowns against Olivia Obama's here. And I think that Nazrat definitely has that takedown defense. Again, people might harp on the Marcin Held fight, but that was over four years ago. It seems like he's making the improvements. He was 21 at the time. You know what I mean? He's had the time to go out there and make the improvements. I'm going to chalk up that Drew Dober loss to just, you know, Dober making hella improvements at this point in time. And I feel like we're going to see a grappling heavy approach from Sarukim that he's not going to be able to get Hackpress down. And we'll see Hackpress kind of just pot shot and, and land his one twos down the middle on Armand. In terms of the reach as well, too, I think that's going to be a huge factor here. Uh, we got 72 and a half inch reach for, sorry, 5'7 and 72 and a half inch reach for Armand Sarukian, whereas Nazrat Hackpress, we got uh, 5'10 with a 72 inch reach. So uh, half inch reach advantage for uh, for uh, Sarukian, but we have a three inch height advantage for Nazrat as well, as well too. So I can definitely see him using that. But uh, yeah, 
again, very surprised that I came out on this side wanting to bet Nazra Hackpress, and I think there's an immense amount of value on him at that plus 250 range. Again, let's not forget, a couple of fights ago, a lot of people were just pegging him to be one of the one of the bigger stars on the rise, um, and I truly believe he still has that potential, and I think this is a great fight for him to get back on the radar of most people. So I'm going with Nazrat Hackprast. I'll take him to win by decision, but I wouldn't be surprised if he gets a knockout here either. Amanda Hibas versus Marina Rodriguez. We got minus 300 on Amanda Hibas and plus 250 on Marina Rodriguez. And as soon as I finished up the tape on this fight, I went on my uh, my personal bookie, uh, Coolbet. Um, again, the link is in the description below if you guys want to hop on Coolbet. Great lines, specifically only for my Canadian viewers. But uh, I got her at plus 282, and I was very surprised that the line was that wide. Even at plus 250, I think it's a solid spot. Even other places, even Pinnacle, you can currently get it at plus 255. Now, let's start off with the Amanda Hiba side of things first before I get over to why I, I made the Marina Rodriguez bet. And, um, you know, kind of surprised as to why the line is as big as it is so marina uh or sorry amanda hibas is coming off a victory over Paige van zandt which in this day and age doesn't really tell us too much she was able to go out there and get that first round uh, armbar victory so at least she went out there and did what she was supposed to do as that significant favorite that that she was if i'm not mistaken she was hovering around that minus 1000 range topology says she was about minus 700 but yeah she was she was definitely one of the biggest favorites of the year she goes out there and does exactly what you're supposed to do Take notes, Maria Agapova. All right, let's keep it moving. Uh, in the fight before that, she went out there and uh, pretty much beat Randa Marcos in an overall MMA game. Some good takedowns there, some good uh, striking as well, too. And uh, it just didn't seem like uh, Randa Marcos really had much for her in that fight. The fight before that, she goes out there and outstrikes soundly Mackenzie Dern, uh, who at that point in time was still working on her striking. We have obviously seen improvements from Mackenzie Dern in her last fight. Uh, trying to put my finger on who actually who she fought last time around, but we saw definitely an improvement from her. Oh yeah, it was Verna Jandi Roba, who herself not the most comfortable on the feet, also. So it was almost like a, a direct comparison of Amanda Hibos having the strike, um, having a solid advantage in the striking against uh, Mackenzie Dern, and then Mackenzie Dern having a solid striking advantage over Verna Jandi Roba. Uh, and uh, then, yeah, the, uh, Amanda Hibas' UFC debut was against Emily Whitmire, where she was able to get a rear naked choke in that second round. That was after she took roughly three years off, and I'm not entirely sure why she had taken that amount of time off, but uh, she did take a huge amount of time off. She was uh, scheduled to make her UFC debut in 2017. That fight doesn't uh, come to fruition. Let's see if Topology actually has the reasoning why. Uh, Hibas, oh, potential USADA violation. Again, when whenever fighters are making their UFC debuts, I kind of cut them a little bit of slack, given the fact that they're, you know, um, they're still getting used to what USADA brings to the table because there's such a strict and vast prohi prohibited substance list. Um, so, you know, coming from a regional scene, especially like from Brazil and uh, fighting for Jungle Fight League and coming to the UFC, obviously you got to make all these types of changes. So I'll cut her a little bit of slack there. But she has one loss on her record and that one loss came to a current UFC fighter in Poliana Vienna. Now, the thing that I find weird about this is that Poliana Vienna is a jiu-jitsu player. She goes out there and knocks out Amanda Hibas. And in that fight, you see her kind of just throwing wildly, kind of what we're used to at Vienna. And she lands right on the chin of uh, Amanda Hibas, plants her on the butt, and follows up with some ground and pound, and eventually gets a stoppage there. Now, this is the first time that we're going to see Amanda Hibas in the UFC fight somebody with legitimate striking. 
And when I say legitimate striking, Marina Rodriguez, that's probably one of the meanest uh, demeanors when it comes to the striking realm. Um, Amanda Kibas, on the other hand, obviously it looks like she has made improvements from her fight against Poliana Vienna, and she does look a lot more comfortable on the feet there. So that that fight, again, being about five years ago when she lost to a Poliana Vienna via strikes, uh, she's definitely made improvements in that amount of time. However, Marina Rodriguez seems like she's been a lifelong striker. She goes in there with the, that crouched Muay Thai stance, uh, very high guard as well too, does a really good job in terms of kind of, uh, you know, protecting her chin, protect, protecting her face. Uh, but her the knock on Rodriguez has always been her takedown defense. You know I mean? She, she goes up there, she goes to a draw with Cynthia Calviore because she's just not able to stop the takedown in that third round. Um, and and she, she gives that away, but she does a good job on, on the feet in those first two. Same with the Carlo Esparza fight. That was a close fight too. That She lost that five years split decision. One judge actually gave her the first two rounds. The third round, obviously, Carlo Esparza's. But uh, Hibas does a good job of continuously dishing out damage. And even when she's off of her back, she's the one throwing the strikes. She's the one remaining active and not allowing the opponent on top to be comfortable enough to really get their game going. Now, I do believe that Hibas probably has the best jujitsu out of the last couple of opponents that uh, Marina Rodriguez has fought. On the flip side, though, I don't think that she has as good takedown or a wrestling and takedown game as a girl like Carla Esparza and even Cynthia Calvillo. But Esparza especially, she comes from a wrestling background. That's pretty much the type of fighter that she is. You know what I mean? Since the get-go, she went out there and out-wrestled girls like Rose Namajunas to get the title first, uh, you know, the inaugural uh, strawweight title. And then uh, in her next fight, she goes out there and fights Yuani and Jacek. Again, somebody I kind of draw similarities to with Marina Rodriguez in terms of their mean streak with the with the striking. But obviously, Yoani and Jacek, much better takedown defense. She's able to keep the fight on the feet and absolutely, absolutely butcher Carla Esparza. Marina Rodriguez does that in the second or first and second rounds, but she did get taken down in those rounds. Uh, but again, did much more damage than the control of Carla Esparza in those first two. Now, the, now here is the issue. Now I think that's why people are hammering this Amanda Hebos line because they think that she can continuously get Marina down and keep her down and maybe pull off a submission or even do enough damage from there. But I think it's going to be very difficult for her to kind of close that distance, get in on uh, Marina. Like if you really watch the fights with Amanda Hebos, most of her takedowns are coming from the clinch positions. Now go back and watch the fights where Marina Rodriguez is in these clinch positions. She is tearing up the body of these women with her knees. She has great elbows inside as well too. It's going to be very hard for Amanda Hibas to try to get these takedowns from that clinch position. It's going to be very, very difficult for sure. Whereas Carla Esparza, you're seeing her grab these high crotches, these double legs. She's getting these takedowns in the open cage. Whereas Amanda Hibas, like she's kind of dragging these women down against the cage. Um, again, most of it coming from the clinch positions. She's not not the one going out there and shooting double legs or high crotches or anything like that so i think that's going to be a very difficult task for amanda hebos to get this fight to the ground and even once it gets to the ground i'm i'm still a little bit uh sketched out by um the 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 legitimate submission game of amanda hebos okay you go out there submit page van Zandt. phenomenal great good for you wasn't able to submit Randa Marcos, who has been submitted in the past, obviously, most notably by Mackenzie Dern. And by the way people are making it sound, Amanda Hibas apparently has Mackenzie Dern, or at least close to Mackenzie Dern type jujitsu. We haven't seen uh, Marina Rodriguez lose by submission or anything like that. But again, I will admit this is probably 
by by all claims, this is going to be the toughest test in terms of a jiu-jitsu opponent. But the longer this fight stays on the feet, we are not going to see the Amanda Hibas that went out there and outstruck Mackenzie Dern. We're not going to see the Amanda Hibas that went out there and outstruck Ronda Marcos. Yeah, I mean, that's just not that's that's not what's going to happen here with Amanda uh, Marina Rodriguez, who's just a much meaner striker. Great leg kicks, great Muay Thai, beautiful knees in the clinch. Uh, you know, she, she's a mean striker. She's pretty much all, all offense all the time. So even if she ends up on her back, I like the the fact that she's going to be fighting and scrapping and and doing the damage and making it more difficult for Amanda Hibas. Also, another thing that I kind of noticed in uh, in the Hibas fights is she has a lot of uh, trouble in terms of always getting damage to the nose and i feel like with the jab and the striking game of uh, marina rodriguez she's definitely going to be hitting that nose she's going to be making it harder for hebos to breathe which should affect her cardio which should affect her ability to get this fight down on a time and time again basis the last time we saw marina rodriguez was july of 2020 against carla esparza again very close fight went to a split decision even mma decisions they pretty much have that fight for marina rodriguez uh so if if Hibas is not successful in getting this fight to the ground, it's going to be a very, very tough night for her. So I'm backing. I believe the odds should be way closer. I think it should be maybe plus 150, plus 170 max for uh, Marina Rodriguez. So the fact that you're giving me plus 282 on, on, a, on a woman who I believe has a much higher win condition and win percentage um, than what the odds are implying, I'm fucking there. I'm all there. So I'm, I'm taking Marina Rodriguez here. I, I wouldn't be surprised if she got her out of there too. Like she could be a sneaky spot for an in the, in the distance play too. Let me see uh, what they have that currently lined at. Uh, so the over-under is uh, 2.5 plus 185 for the under. Rodriguez to win by KO plus 1300. That's worth a shot. Just saying, that's worth a shot. Rodriguez inside the distance is plus 875. I don't think she pulls off the submission here, so you might as well chase that TKO prop. But yeah, goddamn. Yeah, I might even have to sprinkle that a little bit. Might put a 0.1 unit on that officially. But uh, yeah, I like Rodriguez here. I think she gets it done uh, via TKO, probably first or second round. But I think it's going to be a very, very rough night for He Boss the longer that this fight stays on the feet. So once again, I'm going with Marina Rodriguez. Uh, let's go with second round KO. Otman Azaitar versus Matt Frivola. We got minus 160 on Otman and plus 140 on the steamroller Frivola. Let's start off with the steamroller as he's coming off two straight victories over um, Jalen Turner and Luis Pena. Both of those fights he won via decision. Uh, but what we should most remember him for, at least as of late, was his uh, fractured foot, uh, which he suffered the fight week of which uh, uh, September 12th fight card where he was supposed to go up against Roosevelt Roberts, flies to Vegas from uh, the East Coast and then finds out he has a fractured foot. So unfortunately, he was not able to fight. However, he steps in about three to four months later now. And uh, I'm kind of curious as to wondering what his the state of his foot is because because uh, he's really going to need the uh, the movement uh, and he's going to need his feet to, to stay out of the way of the intense power that's going to be coming his way from uh, Atman Azaitar. We know what Matt Frivola's game is. You know, he goes out there, he tries to get takedowns, he tries to put together some strikes and stuff, but the best part of his game is his takedown ability. Now, 
he was able to be successful against uh, Jalen Turner and Luis Pena with those uh, because he wasn't really dealing with too much in return when it comes to the striking game. Now, Luis Pena, that fight went very, very close. That could have been a split decision the other way as well, too. Um, but again, didn't have much to deal with in terms of the punches and the strikes that were coming his way. Now, if you go back to more fights, you got the Polo Reyes fight where he gets knocked out in a minute. He gets dropped twice, and obviously the second one being the, the ultimate one that puts him out. Uh, and then in the Lando Venata fight, he gets dropped twice by Lando Venata in that first round. And it was a very, very unfortunate fight for him. And then it, luckily for him, he goes on to uh, to get a draw in that fight. Now, my concern here with Frivola is his durability and his chin. I feel like it's going to be very much tested here against Otman Azaitar, who hits like an absolute Mack truck. Otman, 9 out of his 13 wins have come in the first round and via KO, and that's just very, very impressive. The guy throws with a ton of power, a ton of veracity, and is able to pull out most of his opponents, just as I gave you that statistic just, just a, a couple minutes ago. A couple seconds ago, I should say. But uh, yeah, I like what he brings to the table, and it seems like he has all it takes to even you know carry that power all the way to the third round. Uh, in one of his fights before coming to the UFC, he was able to go out there and finish a guy in the third round with a beautiful body kick, uh, which ended up crumpling the guy, and he followed up with some strikes there. So I'm not sure if this is really like a Luis Cosi type of uh, situation here where, you know, if he's not able to get it done in the first round, he's probably going to go on and lose this fight. I fully expect him to go out there and take out Matt Frivola in the first round regardless, uh, no matter what. You know, Frivola, very durable, um, but he won't be able to stand up to the to the power in my opinion, what Otman Azatar brings to the table. Mixon, you know, the, the fact that he has a broken foot or had a broken foot, um, that doesn't bode well for a guy that's going to have to get out of the way of all the big strikes from Otman. Now, Otman is very patient and deliberate with his uh, his approach. He waits for his opportunities. Like, even in the Kama Worthy fights, uh, you can hear the coaches for Kama saying, you know, faint, pull something out of him. And that's when they're trying to, you know, um, trying to go forward. Unfortunately, it didn't really matter because no matter what, uh, Otman went out there, still landed on the chin of Frivola and was able to get him out of there relatively quickly. I can't believe that the odds makers actually gave us plus 400 on Otman Azatar last time around uh, to win in the first round. Obviously, had to jump on that. Obviously, cast that shit. And this time around, they're a little bit more keen to the fact that Otman likes to go out there and get his guys out of there early. Uh, so they let the, they set the line at uh, plus 250, which I think is a solid spot uh, to, to take another plunge here on Otman and Azatar to win in the first round. It seems like Favola has a hard time dealing with the strikers in the first round. And it's, you know, you can't have a stumble or even uh hesitate at all when you're fighting a guy like Otman here so I like I got Otman I think he's going to be able to you know nullify any of the takedowns coming his way from Favola as I believe that will be Favola's game plan here I think he's going to have a lot of shit to go through a lot of hell and high water to uh close that distance uh get his hands around Otman and try to get him down I do believe that Otman will be able to nullify that uh and then land the big strikes and eventually put Favola out so I'm going with Otman Azatar to win this fight via your first round KO and I can't really wait to to see how he really pans out in the UFC like at a certain point he's going to go up against other guys that will be able to avoid those shots and maybe even take those shots and then pull him into deeper water but uh is Frivola that guy I don't think so I think Otman's going to go out there and absolutely bull rush him and, and and get the finish nice and early so once again I'll go with Otman Azatar to win this fight via first round KO Joanne Calderwood versus Jessica I. We got minus 120 on uh, Joanne Calderwood and plus 100 on Jessica I. I'm 
kind of stumbled there because I actually thought the line was flipped. It seems like that there has been a little bit of money coming in on uh, Joanne Calderwood, which is kind of pushing it towards her. But on other books, we do have it at a pretty much a pick em line. And the way that I kind of want to start off this breakdown is just letting you guys know in, in regards to this 125 pounds women's flyweight division, it, it kind of goes in tiers in terms of the level of talent. So obviously, we got Valentina Shevchenko all the way up here. Then we got women like Jessica I, Joanne Calderwood, Jennifer Maya, Catelyn Chikagian, uh, Cynthia Calvillo. We have those women kind of in the mid-range that I like to call it. And then we have the rest of the division pretty much. And whenever you have women within that that mid-range, I feel as though the fight could be super close given the type of style that they bring to the table. Like Joanne Calderwood and Jessica I are primarily strikers. And you see a little bit more Muay Thai from the, from the Joanne Calderwood side. Whereas you see Jessica I using her boxing and her combinations more often than not. Now, the most impressive victory on Jessica I's record to date, or at least in the last uh, little bit, has been her victory over against uh, Viviani Araujo, who uh, just won this past weekend over, uh, or this past Wednesday, I should say, when in the middle of this uh, three three fights in one week thing. But uh, yeah, um, we saw Viviani Araujo go out there and just absolutely batter Roxanne Modafari over 15 minutes. Now, in the fight with Jessica I, we saw her kind of struggle with the fact that every time she closed the distance to try to get her combinations off Jessica I pretty much just stood her ground through her own combinations as well and it kind of made uh, Viviani Arujo a little bit more hesitant to kind of close the distance and get her game going there were a couple takedowns that uh, Arujo was able to uh, capitalize on but she didn't really do much on top uh, which is why Jessica I was pretty much be, uh, able to get back to her feet relatively quickly um, I've always been a Jessica hate, Jessica I hater, and I'm not sure exactly why. Um, you know, just, just sometimes you know when you just when somebody just rubs you the wrong way and you can't really put your finger on it. That's kind of what Jessica I is to me. But I have to give it up to her. She does show skills, and the fact that she was able to beat a girl like Viviani, who seems to be on a rocket ship right now, uh, it's very impressive for sure. Uh, last time around, we did see her against Cynthia Calvillo, and we saw her drop a five-round decision uh, victory to Cynthia, who was able to implement her grappling um, and uh, you know use her jiu-jitsu, um, accrue a ton of uh, control time, and then do a good job of uh, staying away from the big punches and combinations of Jessica I. And stylistically, that was a very tough fight for uh, for for Jessica I, and I was kind of surprised that she actually even went into that fight as the slight favorite. Um, Obviously, uh, I did end up betting on the Cynthia Calvillo side, and I was happy with the result that I got. But Jessica, I, you know, she can definitely fight to a higher level uh, than what she had shown in that fight. Now, here against Joanne Calderwood, you're talking about jo Joanne, who was on the cusp of a title shot against Valentina Shevchenko, and they were actually scheduled to fight each other before this whole COVID thing went down. And then, unfortunately, COVID happened. Uh, that fight card gets canceled. Canceled. That fight gets canceled as well. But Joanne Calderwood still wants to go out there and fight and stay active. So within that first little while that the UFC came back, uh, Joanne Calderwood decided to take a fight against Jennifer Maya, and unfortunately came out on the losing end, losing via armbar near the ending of that first round. Now the the first round was pretty much. Uh, um, pretty competitive. I, you you got to give the slight advantage to um, to Jennifer Maya there, and then eventually Joanne Calderwood decided to take this fight to the ground, maybe to try to like get the get the judges nod for that first round and really secure that first round. But unfortunately for her, she wasn't really prepared for the the jujitsu that was coming her way from Jennifer Maya, who snatched up a beautiful uh, armbar and eventually got the tap from uh, tap from her late in that first round. 
And then we all know what happened with Jennifer Myers. She goes and gets the title shot against Valentina Shevchenko and does something that not a lot of women have been able to do, which is actually steal a round from Valentina Shevchenko. But uh, we're talking about Joanne Calderwood here. Again, decent Muay Thai. I actually used to follow her from her Super Fight League days um, way back in the day. That was closer to when she first made her pro MMA debut. Then obviously she came on to the Ultimate Fighter uh, and now she's been in the UFC for a little while. She's never really been able to like string together a solid amount of victories to really get a good like thing going obviously she was in line for a title shot but that was only coming off of one victory over andrea lee which was a split decision as well too and that just kind of shows you the state of where the flyweight division is and how dominant valentina shevchenko is she's just running through these contenders or contenders uh and they're just having to give her women that are just coming off of one you know a one win in the Andrea Lee fight, she mixed in takedowns. She was able to do, do some good shot uh, damage from on top as well, too. Had some good success in the striking range as well, too. But there are a lot of people that actually believe that Andrea Lee deserved that victory that night, myself included. Then before that, she goes out there and gets outstriked by Kalen Jukagian. So what I'm trying to say is here and, and trying to show you guys is like these fighters fights are super close. So to really have a true uh, backing here and, and truly go out there and say, okay, this person is for sure going to win you're kind of doing yourself a disservice as i believe that the either of these fights are going to be very very close so um i'm actually going to go with the jessica eyes out of things i think that she is going to be able to pretty much do what she did in the viviani Arujo fight what she's pretty good at which is always whenever her opponents come in and try to strike with her she lets her combinations go like she's not afraid of the damage that's going to be coming her way as i truly believe she doesn't think that she's going to get knocked out by some of these women unfortunately it was different for her when she fought a girl like valentina shevchenko uh but again after valentina there seems to be a pretty hefty drop off in terms of level of competition and women that could put her lights out and again joanne calderwood i don't think she's going to have that power to really put uh jessica out so i truly think that we'll see i uh land the more combinations land the more significant blows um joanne might have a little bit more edge in terms of volume that would that's what really is kind of scaring me off here um and which is why i truly believe that this fight is going to be as close as it is but i still do uh side with the jessica eye side of things uh, even at dog money it might not be a, a bad shot let's see how much wider that line gets if it does get to like the plus 130s ish or plus 140s uh for jessica first of all i'd be stumped to see it drop that much over the next couple days uh but that would be an auto bet considering that this fight is uh in my eyes a 50 50 fight could go either way so you might as well take the value side on the dog so i'm going with jessica i i think she has a solid chance of winning this fight uh with her combinations um and, and possibly landing the more significant blows um but again the the volume of joanne gives me a little bit of pause there but i still go with jessica i to win this fight via decision dan hooker versus michael chandler and it's the long-awaited ufc debut of michael chandler a guy who was a pretty much a, a staple over there in the bellator scene won the lightweight title had a couple big fights in there most notably that uh war that he had with eddie alvarez way back in 2013 uh that's kind of what put him on the map initially obviously uh you know goes on to become the champion and uh just a huge like bellator ambassador and spokesperson it's just it's so weird to just see him taking pictures in like ufc gear now because you, you truly believed that michael chandler was going to be a bellator lifer and i don't mean that as an insult i just thought like you know uh bellator has always wanted to go out there and kind of establish themselves as uh they, they want to match the ufc and obviously it's a it's a crazy goal uh but uh 
they they need to hold on to talent like that so that they can continuously showcase that there are some of the top fighters in the UFC or in the MMA world uh, fighting for them. But unfortunately for some of these fighters, they have this itch to come over to the UFC because they truly feel like the best competition is in the UFC. And that's exactly what Michael Chandler is getting, especially right off the bat against uh, Dan Hooker here. Now, back in January, I put out a tweet regarding some of the biggest uh, lightweight prospects, not even prospects, or biggest lightweight names that came over from uh, other organizations and how they did in the UFC. So I'm just pulling that up right now for you guys. Uh, so uh, they pretty much went three and three. I gave six six examples and they went three and three. Let's go down the list real quick. We had Anthony Pettis coming over from... Um, WAC, WEC as the champion. Originally, he was supposed to get the uh, the title shot right away against Frank Edgar, but Frank Edgar and Gray Maynard, they go out there and fight to a draw, so they have to get an immediate rematch. Anthony Pettis doesn't want to sit around and wait, so he takes on Clay Guida, and he gets grinded out in a three-round decision, so he loses there. Uh, Eddie Alvarez comes over from Bellator. First person they give him, Donald Cowboy Cerrone. Cowboy Cerrone puts on an absolute clinic and wins that fight via decision. Uh, Gilbert Melendez comes over from Strike Force, and this was a fight that we really wanted to see was him against Ben Henderson, who was you know a champion over there in WEC, and there was always this um, conversation of how you know those guys would go up against each other and how it would look. Ben Henderson comes out as the reigning champion and ends up beating Gilbert Melendez there. Now for the wins, we got Justin Gaethje coming over to, from the WSOF slash PFL, uh, and he goes out there and beats Michael Johnson in an absolute barn burner. Uh, great fight, great performance from Justin Gaethje there. Will Brooks comes over as the Bellator champion as well too, and loses to Ross Pearson. Or sorry, he beats Ross Pearson again. Ross Pearson not on the level of the other guys that uh, you know some of these guys faced. And speaking of not being on the level. Ben Henderson, when he came over from the WEC, he didn't come over as the champion, but he came over as a highly touted lightweight from the WEC. He goes up against Mark Bocek. Um, highly doubt many of the viewers of this show even know who Mark Bocek is, uh, but Ben Henderson goes on to beat him via decision as well. So it's kind of inconclusive regarding the big name lightweights that have come over from other promotions and how they've performed in the UFC in their debuts. And I kind of lump Dan Hooker into the 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 Cowboy Cerrone's, the Ben Hendersons, and the the Clay Guidas in terms of being high level talent in the UFC or an established talent within the UFC going up against the guy coming over from a different promotion. So I think this is a very very tough matchup for Michael Chandler coming into this. We have uh, uh, Dan Hooker coming in as a minus one twenty favorite. Um, I, I've been a big fan of Mike Chandler, but I just feel like stylistically it's going to be very hard to him him to co- overcome some of the the challenges that the lightweight division in the ufc brings uh again dan hooker very long for the division how he made 145 pounds i have absolutely no idea but since he's come up to uh, 155 pounds there's only been a couple of guys that have been managed to uh, kind of turn him back edson barboza um and uh and most notably and recently was dustin poirier uh in a crazy five-round war that they had um Again, he, he comes from a great training camp, City Kickboxing, trains alongside Israel Adesanya, Alexander Volkanovsky. So you know that in terms of game planning and coaching, he's coming from the, the, the cream of the crop. These guys do a really good job in terms of diver, uh, devising game plans around their opponents and how uh, they can go up there and, and kind of stifle their games. You know, I mean, uh, just an example, I remember um, when Dan Hooker fought Ali Quinta. 
That was a fight where he just laid on those calf kicks and pretty much took the power away from Ali Quinta. And uh, even whenever Ali Quinta was trying to go for takedowns, he just was not successful in doing so because the power from his legs were pr- truly shot. Now, uh, another angle that a lot of people are looking back at, and they're really digging deep for this one in terms of kind of betting against Daniel Hooker here, is uh, the Jason Knight fight. When Dan Hooker fought Jason Knight, he lost that fight via decision. And that was a fight where Jason Knight was able to secure four takedowns in that fight. And a lot of people are like, look, he couldn't defend takedowns back then. But now if you look at him at, at 155 pounds, he stuffed 19 of 21 total takedown attempts against him. That's very, very impressive. He's only ever he's only given up a takedown to uh, uh, to Dustin Poirier, and there was one more that I wanted to bring up real quick. I'm gonna pull that up just now. I should remember this right off the top of my head. But um, the other takedown that he gave up was to Jim Miller, but he was able to get up pretty quickly after that and then finish him via KO. So it didn't really end up mattering there. Michael Chandler, obviously much better and more credentialed than the past opponents that he's faced since coming up to 155 pounds. But it's very encouraging to see him, um, you know, stuffing takedowns the way that he has against, uh, again, stuffed 19 takedowns in 21 attempts since, uh, since uh, when is this, 2017, June 2017. So that covers one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine fights for Danny Hooker, where he just continues to look better on a fight-to-fight basis. Um I think that length is going to be a lot for Michael Chandler to deal with. He doesn't really check leg kicks well either, so I could see uh, Hooker kind of implementing the game plan that he had against Ali Quinto, where he's just attacking the lead leg, uh, calf kick after calf kick after calf kick, and then really start to mix in his striking as well too, because I think he can hold that range very well against Michael Chandler, who's going to have to overcome that to, to one, get his wrestling game going, and two, try to land those big shots. He has that wrestling style of of striking where it's just looping hooks, wide shots, and that's going to be money for uh, for Daniel Hooker in terms of countering that on a, pretty much every time Michael Chandler tries to close the distance. And even that knee up the middle from Daniel Hooker, being so tall um, against a, a guy like Michael Chandler, I want to give you guys the actual metrics in terms of how they match up. We got six foot Daniel Hooker with a four-inch height advantage over uh, Michael Chandler, who's coming in at 5'8". In terms of a reach, you got 75-inch reach for Daniel Hooker, 71-inch reach for Michael Chandler. Um, yeah, it, it's going to be very hard for him to, to 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 close that distance. Now, the last time that we saw Michael Chandler get hurt was against Brent Primus, which was a uh, specifically the strike was a counter-left hook while Michael Chandler was closing that distance, and it absolutely face-planted uh, Chandler and we saw him, you know, have to gather his whips about him, and then a couple minutes later, he ends up getting on top of Brent Primus and kind of just laying on top of him there. The rest of that fight, rounds three, four, and five, makes no bones about it. Goes out there, gets the takedown pretty much immediately, and just hangs out in the guard of uh, of Brent Primus, landing some good enough shots from on top to stay active enough so that the referee doesn't stand them up. I think he's going to have a lot more to deal with if that's the route that he chooses to take here. I, I believe he could secure some takedowns on Daniel Hooker here, but I think he's going to have a lot to deal with off of his back. Um, I think Daniel Hooker will remain active, landing some elbows, throwing up some missions, and, and just using that long, lanky range, which is going to make it very difficult for Michael Chandler to settle on top and really get those punches and those strikes going, and, and even to stay active enough to score and even try to keep this fight on the ground. 
I think on the feet, Daniel Hooker absolutely has him beat. Um, and I think he's live for a, for a knockout as well, too. Michael Chandler has a very suspect and uh, uh, suspect chin and some durability issues. We saw P- Patricio Pipo Fajera finish him a couple of fights ago. Obviously, we saw Brent Premis rock him and hurt him as well, too. But his last couple of fights, Sydney Outlaw, that guy's mainly a grappler. So I'm not really looking too far into that fight. And then Ben Henderson, we're, we're talking about 2020. Ben Henderson, and I'm the I'm the first one to back Ben Henderson here. I mean, I'm, he's probably one of the first ever fighters that I could consider one of my favorite fighters. Uh, but at this point in time, it's just a completely different skill set than what we have, what we knew about Ben Henderson way back in the day. So I don't really rank that victory in 2022 highly for Michael Chandler. Yeah, he got the knockout. Yeah, he got the victory there. But again, you're going up against a, a Dan Hooker that's in his prime. You know, Michael Chandler is going to be 35 this year. He's definitely getting up there in age. So that's something that people are going to have to worry about when you're backing Michael Chandler because now he's going up against legitimate comp. Well, I don't want to say legitimate because that means I'm discrediting the guys over in Bellator. But now he's fighting a different echelon of fighters and he's going to have to be at his best. You know, I mean, this is between like 30 and 34 or 33 is usually when the fighter is truly at their peak. Um, or you consider that they're truly in their prime. Uh, so he's kind of getting on the back end of that range. And he turns 35 this year in April, so that's something that he's going to have to worry about. Uh, but but with Dan Hooker, you're talking about a guy that's 30 years old, 31 years old, who has um, who who can make this a very difficult fight for Michael Chandler on the feet. And I, that's where I think this fight is going to take place for the most part. So I'm taking Dan Hooker, and I might even take him by KO. I think he he's absolutely live to put Michael Chandler out here, who should, who might struggle to get him down, who will struggle to cover the distance, and will, is going to have to eat a lot of heavy shots. But we've seen the 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 lead left hook of uh, Daniel Hooker be very very successful for him in past fights, and that's exactly what dropped um, Michael Chandler when he fought Brent Primus. So that's something that people should be looking out for as well. Uh, but yeah, I got Daniel Hooker here. I'm going to take him the win by KO. I wouldn't be surprised either if he locks on a, a choke as well if Michael Chandler gets a little bit too desperate with his shots. Uh, we've seen Daniel Hooker pull off a guillotine choke um, a couple of times now in the UFC, and that could absolutely absolutely be an angle here that he's looking for. But I think they're going to drop a great game plan, starting off with the calf kicks, starting off with the leg kicks. And if uh, Michael Chandler doesn't check any of those, it's going to be a very, very rough night for him. So I'm going with Daniel Hooker. I'm going to say by KO as well, too. I think he can absolutely put out Michael Chandler, whether it's a barrage of strikes, a TKO, or even a one-punch KO, absolutely live here. So I'm going with Daniel Hooker uh, via KO. Here we are. We finally made it to the main event of UFC 257. We got Conor McGregor versus Dustin Poirier in a rematch from when they initially fought at UFC 178 way back in September of 2014. And that was pre-Connor explosion. If you guys remember, uh, that was just as he was getting his uh, name out there. Uh, we did start to see a lot of uh, Irish fans start to come out and, and start to po- uh, support him. You know, they used to fly uh, over the pond and they used to come out in droves uh, and, and really support Connor McGregor. Uh, and it was huge for him. You know, that was... Uh, the the fight right before his Dennis Seaver fight, which is which happened in Boston, something that me and my my wife at now wife uh, got to go out there and experience ourselves, and it was a wonderful experience uh, to be in Boston and have those amount of Irish fans around and and just see the explosion of Connor because that was a fight that he had right before he went on to fight uh, Chad Mendes for the interim title, and uh, from there his star just absolutely skyrocketed. But this Dusty Poirier one was his first one that was really 
that kind of put him on the map in terms of being a serious contender and being somebody that was real because we're talking about Dustin Poirier back then who you know was one of the top guys at 145 pounds had headlined a couple fight night shows by that amount of time had an absolute war against Korean Zombie and a lot of people were thinking okay if Conor went out there and continued his reign of dominance uh, he was gonna you know really skyrocket and become a star and that's exactly what happened that night uh, in Las Vegas um yeah, so the way they match up, obviously the, the difference here obviously would be the, the fact that this fight is now at 155 pounds compared to when they used to f uh, when they fought at 145 pounds in the past. Um, both guys used to suck a lot of weight to get down to 145. We, we've obviously all seen those um, comparison pictures of Conor McGregor at 145 pounds, 155 pounds, and 175 pounds. And he looks, or 170 pounds I should say, and he looks amazing at 155 and like he looks full, he looks healthy, he looks like he's not really cutting all that amount of weight uh, to get down to 155. So that's a very huge perk for him uh, coming into this fight against Dustin Poirier. So let's talk about what they've been up to since that amount of time. We've seen Conor McGregor go uh, six and two in that amount of time. His two losses obviously coming to Nate Diaz, which he quickly avenged right after both fights happening at 100. 70 pounds and then obviously his huge grudge match against Khabib Nurmagomedov who stylistically is just a very very bad matchup for him so I completely understand uh and can you know can't really blame him for losing a fight like that if anything he went out there and performed a lot better than people expected him to to survive up until the fourth round and and uh, stuff four takedowns of Khabib and even whenever Khabib was uh you know taking him down and and mounting him and and passing his his guard um Conor McGregor did a pretty good job of kind of retaining his guard, um, obviously quickly passed once again by Khabib, but to continuously do that and even like deep into the fight, we're talking third round, fourth round, where he's still active enough to get out of these bad positions. Then unfortunately in that fourth round, he does find himself up against the cage. Khabib gets his back and eventually taps him out due to a rear naked choke. But again, you're talking about Khabib Nurmagomedov, probably one of the greatest fighters of all time, who's currently 29-0 and as of this moment, is currently retired so he's going down as you know again argue arguably one of the greatest mixed martial artists of all time so it's not really too much to hang your head about if you're a conor mcgregor backer um what makes conor so great is his accuracy and his pinpoint uh striking because he doesn't really throw in heavy combinations but he really slows the fight down to his pace really gauges his distance very correctly uh his wide karate type stance uh, really helps him to kind of lunge in uh and and kind of generate the most power possible for his strikes but also allows him to leap out and get out of the way of the big strikes coming from his opponents and i think he's been able to master that over his mma career which has allowed him to have as many brutal knockouts as he has had and allows him to kind of evade the big strikes of his opponents Outside of the, his fight with Khabib Nurmagomedov, uh, the most notable loss or at least a flaw that we've seen on Conor's uh, career was his fight against Nate Diaz where he took that fight on very short notice, took it up a weight class as well too, and was going up against a guy that had a completely different game plan than what he was originally expected to go up against with Rafael Dos Anjos. Um, Nate Diaz, um, you know, hella durable, never really been finished or anything like that, and Conor tried to go out there and be that guy to finish Nate Diaz unfortunately he just wasn't able to 
He unloaded his gas tank in that first round, wasn't able to put Nate Diaz away. And then once that second round came, you really start to see the cardio catch up with him because he was not preparing to go five rounds against Nate Diaz. He was expecting to put him out in that first round. Unfortunately for him, Nate Diaz stood stood through the fire, uh, took everything Connor had in that first round, and then took over with his own cardio, his own boxing, and then eventually rear naked choking him as well in that second round. Um, then they fought right after that. You know, a couple months later, they come back uh, and they headline UFC 202. Same stipulations. You got 170 pounds, uh, five rounds. And Conor McGregor specifically asked, it for, asked for those things because he wanted to go out there and right those wrongs from the last time around. And he came out with a much more composed game plan, a much more patient game plan, knowing that he was not going to be able to take out Nate Diaz uh, relatively quickly as he assumed he would have done in that first fight. And we saw a pretty good performance from Connor. He was able to notch three rounds there. Uh, the fourth round is one that the last round that he was able to win. Nate Diaz picks up the fifth round, and we do see Connor start to. It seemed like he gassed. I'm not going to lie. In that fourth round, he did a good job of kind of pacing himself, pot shotting Nate Diaz, throwing a couple of kicks in there. His leg kicks were very, very detrimental to the movement and mobility of Nate Diaz later in that fight. However, in that fifth round, it looked like Connor was more so trying to survive more than anything. Um, Nate Diaz obviously wasn't close to any finishes in that round, uh, but it looked like Connor was, you know, he was jogging around a little bit more, looking up at the clock, just trying to milk the clock as much as possible, knowing that he was probably up three rounds there and just needed to get to that 25th minute so that he was able to uh, get his hand raised. And that's exactly what happened that night. And, the, and now let's go back and look at the dust the the original fight the first fight they had at UFC 178 between Dustin Poirier and Conor McGregor we saw again that patience he was gauging the distance he was waiting for his moment to pop and when he did Dustin Poirier paid for it like it, it, you can say all you want about Dustin Poirier's durability but that that Celtic cross that that beautiful left straight down the middle it comes with such speed and precision from Conor that it's really hard to get out of the way of those shots and and it's really hard to even deal uh with, with the power that's coming your way like he's dropped and finished so many guys with that left straight down the middle you know again uh, Jose Aldo being one of those main guys that he was able to finish relatively quickly with that same shot um yeah it's so hard to just deal with what Connor brings in terms of power and precision and you know of course both of these fighters have made such improvements since their since their first meeting that I still believe that Connor still can go out there and replicate that first performance um Dustin Poirier has been through hell and high water since that first fight with Connor uh got an uh won the interim title by beating Max Holloway over a five-round fight uh then goes out there tries to unify the bouts against Khabib meets the same fate as Connor unfortunately doesn't survive up into the fourth gets choked out in the second um and then since then uh has only fought Dan Hooker in a, a fight of the year contender where they went five rounds going back and forth um both guys showing great durability um but, uh, uh, you know, Dustin Poirier still eventually goes out there and gets his hand raised via decision and just shows, you know, the, the durability, the, the experience, the longevity that he's had in the UFC. Uh, it's definitely paying off for him. But here against Conor, I just feel like he might meet the same fate that he did in that first fight. I, you know, the, the line being as wide as, as it is currently, we have Conor close to a 3-1 to one favorite. Uh, the, the money coming back on Dustin Poirier is about plus 240, plus 250. And I'm trying to figure out a way and and a reasoning and a method why I should be betting Dustin Poirier in the spot you know considering how 
uh, inactive Connor has been in the cage. Like the last time we saw him, he goes out there and dusts um, Donald Cowboy Cerrone within a minute. Then he goes out there and, and dusts, or, or sorry, the fight before that was against Khabib. I mean, you're talking about a fight that happened in uh, 2018, uh, October of 2018, takes about a year off, fights Cowboy Cerrone in January of 2020, gets him out of there in 40 seconds. So he's not really getting that longevity and, that, and those minutes inside the cage. Um, the last time, so Conor McGregor, we've seen him in the fourth round against Khabib Nurmagomedov, showed decent cardio up until the point he got choked out. We've seen him in the fifth round once against Nate Diaz, and that was around again in the fifth round. He dropped it on all three judges' scorecards. Dustin Poirier, on the other hand, the last two fights that has gone to a five-round decision, no, notably the Dan Hooker and the um, Max Holloway fights, he won rounds four and five unanimously over all six judges that scored those rounds. Um, so I, I gotta, you know, based on the facts that we have. You got to kind of assume that Dustin Poirier might have the cardio advantage here the later that this fight goes. And obviously the power of Conor McGregor is going to slowly start to dwindle the later this fight goes. Unfortunately for Dustin, though, I just don't see it going that far. I still think that we see Conor go out there, maintain the distance as calmly and patiently as we've known to come with uh, Conor McGregor. And we'll see him eventually land that left hand again. And I just don't think it's something that we're going to see Dustin Poirier really um, kind of stand up against. Um, again, I, I want to harp on the durability that we've seen from Dustin Poirier, especially, especially since the first meeting. The only time we've seen him incur a knockdown in that amount of time was when he got knocked out by Michael Johnson. But even that was over five years ago now, coming in, coming up to six years ago. Um, he's shown a great chin. He's ate a bunch of shots from all of these opponents, but nobody has that precision and power of a Conor McGregor. And I think that's where the difference maker is here. So as much as people want to go out there and discredit Connor and just say, okay, he's all about the money and he's picking his, picking and choosing his opponents, he still goes out there and he delivers masterful performances. And I'm expecting the same thing here against Dustin Poirier. I, I don't care how much improvements that Dustin has made since their first meeting and how good he's looked as of late. He's still a hittable opponent. You know what I mean? He, he's still somebody that takes shots, uh, but I just don't see him being able to stand up to that power of Conor McGregor this time around. Again, I, I believe Connor has solid takedown defense, and I don't think that's something that Dustin Poirier will be able to lean on here. Um, if he wants to clinch up with him, Connor does a good job of kind of negating the amount of damage that comes to him uh, in those positions, and he does a good job of digging under hooks and getting out of those positions as well, too. I'm trying to find an angle for Dustin Poirier, but I just can't find it. The only angle that I kind of give to him would be if this fight does go later. I could see him winning those later rounds, but I just don't see it getting past that second round. And that's my issue here with uh, with looking for a reason to bet Dustin Poirier. So uh, the, the angles that I'm looking at in terms of betting this fight, uh, it's tough to, to take Connor at minus 310. That's a very chalky line there. So maybe you want to look at the under 2.5, which is minus 175. Or even if you want to look at Connor by KO, that's minus 180, which is crazy. So you get a slightly better price tag if you take the under 2.5. Or if you want to just sprinkle... Uh, McGregor in round one plus 175 some good some good money there or even McGregor in round two at plus 350 I think if you take both of those or even uh, you know depending on what your approach is I, I think those are the two uh, outcomes here is McGregor in round one or McGregor in round two both of them are going to come by knockout regardless I don't see him submitting Dustin Poirier I think Poirier might have a, a slight advantage uh, when it comes to pure jiu-jitsu but uh, I truly think that it's going to be Connor that still ends up getting his hand raised here. So I'll go with McGregor to win this fight by, I'll go by first round KO. 
Um, very unfortunate. Again, I, I really wanted to find that angle to bet Dustin Poirier here, but I just can't do it. So uh, once again, uh, I'm going with Conor McGregor to win this fight via first round KO. And those are the breakdowns. I uh, appreciate you guys checking out the episode as always. If you guys haven't already, make sure you subscribe and like below. Um, yeah, uh, I, I will also be dropping the link to the DFS show that I'm doing over on Salvetri's channel. That should be in the description below as well. So if you guys have any interest in the DFS side of things, I'll be covering everything DFS-wise on his channel. So the link is in the description below. Make sure you guys go check that out. Uh, yeah, good luck on your best this weekend. And uh, I hope to speak to you guys the first week of February uh, on a much better note than I did with this one after coming off of two losses. So just remember, there's no UFC on January 30th, which means there will be no episode tomorrow uh, or sorry next week uh, the next one will come out for the February 6th card whatever that Monday is that's when we'll be dropping the next one also uh, fight day uh, 1 p.m. Eastern I do my normal MMA lockcast live stream make sure you guys join me for that that's always a fun time you guys always come out it's funny how many people we had come out for the Wednesday event uh, 7 30 a.m. Eastern time a lot of people were coming out and supporting your boys so shout out to everybody that came up uh, woke up early and and came and hang out with your boys so um the next one will be on fight day saturday 1 p.m eastern make sure you guys join me it's going to be on this youtube channel here and uh, yeah take in all last minute questions comments and concerns uh and that show is all about you guys i pretty much started off by letting you guys know what my bets are and then i get into the comment section and we just have a ball that's all it is all right good luck on your best this weekend and i'll see you guys uh for the next one